Uh, well, good morning. Uh, Molly, thank you for the wonderful introduction this morning. I was going to do that myself. Uh, and my name is Paul. I am the campus pastor for Ignite Sunnyland. If you are visiting with us this morning, uh, before we get into the message, let me just say this. Please don't judge Ignite Church about uh, on what I'm going to say this morning. Uh, and so if you're visiting with us, please come back next week uh, and hear Pastor Russ preach. Um, uh, he's much better at it than I am, so you want to make sure uh, that you come back uh, next week as well if you're visiting with us. Uh, before we get into the word, though, let me just, let me just pray for us, and uh, then we'll dive in. Lord God, we thank you for this morning, just a sweet time for worship and just coming into your throne room and meeting with you. And Lord, I just pray that you would bless us, that you would guide us. Uh, God, as we open up your word today, would you speak to us? Um, may we leave here different people than when we came in. And we just pray this all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so just by a show of hands, how many in this room have seen the movie Office Space before? Some of you. Great. I'm not the only heathen in the room then uh, that has seen that movie. Um, If you have not seen that movie, let me just say, families, this is not a good idea to go rent this movie, watch it with your kids over the weekend. Probably not a good idea. Not the most family-friendly movie in the world. Um, But I I wanted to show that clip because before I was in full-time ministry, I actually worked at a university in St. Louis. And I would often use the movie Office Space to train my staff in professionalism uh, and how to be really, really good at your job. And I would kind of use that movie as a not-to guide, right? Like, don't do these things. For example, if you're not familiar with the movie, I'm going to give it a little boy. Like, don't show up four hours late to work. Probably not a good idea. Uh, Not a good idea to take a baseball bat to the fax machine. Probably not a good idea. Um, Not a good idea to ignore your boss, even though he's a jerk and you might want to. Probably not a good idea. Not a good idea to clean a fish at your desk. That happens in the movie. Um, I don't know why someone would do that, but he cleaned a, a fish at his desk. Not a good idea to steal millions of dollars from your company. Probably not a good idea. Uh, not a good idea to burn the place down. That happened as well in the movie. Uh, and so those aren't good ideas. And generally, if you want to be successful in life, just do the opposite of what happens in office space and you'll be okay. Now, there's another good idea, though, that's presented in the movie that we saw in that clip. And that other bad idea is jumping to conclusions. That's moving and acting without thinking. It's prejudging situations before we get all the facts. And the reason I'm talking about that this morning is that we're in week two of a four-part series here at Ignite Church. Uh, Both campuses are doing that right now, and we're calling that series Pause. And this series is all about learning to hit the pause button in our lives and to leave room for God to work giving space in our lives instead of responding quickly and reacting all the time, taking moments to just to wait, to pause, to look heavenward, to look towards God and allow him to work in our lives. And as Russ said last week, this is something in our culture that I think we have a really, really hard time with. Our culture moves at the speed of light and and we want to react and do what we should be doing or what we think we should be doing right now. We want what we want right now. We don't want to wait for it. We hate standing in lines. We hate waiting for anything. And we, we clearly hate waiting for God to show up and move in our lives. We are impatient people. But in learning to pause, by learning to wait, learning not to react right away, Learning to uh, wait on God, it actually leads to revolution in our lives. It it leads to the changes that we want to see. It leads to the good life. If we would just learn to pause 
and to wait on God, that's when things get better. When we stop rushing into everything and responding and reacting to what's ever happening around us and just learning to pause and wait on God, that's where the good life happens. Now, one of the areas I think that we as a culture right now, probably even as a church right now, honestly, if we're we're honest with ourselves, where we really stink is this whole idea of jumping to conclusions. That is, we make quick judgments before knowing all the facts. And because of this, we react in ways at best that are not helpful and at worst react counter to the will of God. We often jump to conclusions. We react without knowing all the facts, and and we end up doing things that are opposed to what God would have for us. In fact, I would say that a lot of the time when we do this, when we jump to conclusions, when we respond without thinking and pausing and waiting on God, oftentimes we're actually deceived. We're actually lied to, and, and we permetrate those lies. We, we promote those lies because we respond, rather than what on God's truth is, we respond in the lies that the world often tells us. We're often deceived. You know, this week I was listening to a podcast from this church in Texas, and if Russ were here, he would make fun of me right now because it's, it's from this church that I really love in Texas called The Village Church. Their pastor's name is Matt Chandler. I have a little bit of a love affair with Matt Chandler, uh, so Russ would mock me a little bit. But one of the things that I was listening to a podcast from them this week, uh, they had a couple of journalists on that actually were now pastors. They were former journalists, had been in journalism school, and now they're pastors. And they were talking on that podcast about the, this issue of fake news. Fake news. Yeah, this is often what I feel like when I hear the word fake news. You might feel that way as well. It, it's a big deal in our culture right now. And, and here's really what I think about fake news. Fake news is just news that we don't agree with, right? Fake news is just news that we don't agree with. We hear something we don't like, and because we don't like it, we just call it fake news. That's often what fake news is. And, and, and what, one of the things that they mentioned is that many of the news sites, the things that we see sometimes on our Facebook feeds or on our Twitter feeds, um, be it from either liberal news feeds or conservative news feeds, actually they make up stories because they're not in the business of really reporting the truth. They're not in the business of reporting the truth. A lot of these um, so-called news sites are really in the business of making money by selling ads. And so they will just either make up stories or tell the half-truth of a story and then post them as real news to get people like you and people like me to follow their sites so that they can sell impressions to advertisers. That's what these, these journalists who, had, who are now pastors were talking about, that, that fake news is not about telling you the truth. News sites, often these things that we see on our Facebook feeds or our Twitter feeds are not about telling you the truth. They're really about trying to get you to click on their site so you, they, can sell, they can make money off of it. And then, but what happens, though, is we see these things on Facebook or on Twitter or whatever, and we are very quick to take sides. Right? We see something, and it, it, it triggers something in us. We like it, and, and so we might like it. We might share it. We might comment on it. Right? We do this all the time, don't we? We see something online, and we're like, man, that, 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 I like that, and so I, I, I comment on it. Or, or the opposite. We see something we don't like. 
We see something we don't like, so we click the angry face. Anybody click the angry face sometimes? Or we blast people making a comment. We call them nades. We, we can't believe someone would say this. And we get in these huge diatribes, these huge debates, and we're angry and yelling at each other. Anybody get in one of those? Ever? Yes, a couple of you did. All right, awesome. I'm not the only one then. Praise Jesus. Um, and, but this is what we, we walk into. And then we end up jumping to conclusions, and we don't have all the facts, and we end up promoting lies rather than the truth. We promote lies rather than the truth, and that's why this message this morning is called deception. This morning, this message is called deception. And by learning to pause, we avoid the deception that often happens to us. By learning to pause, we can learn to avoid the lies that we've been told and we, we can avoid telling those lies to others. And when I think about being deceived and jumping to conclusions, it reminds me of a story found in the Old Testament. It's found in the book of Joshua. Uh, so if you have a Bible, you can turn there. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 22, verses 10 through 28 is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible, it's totally cool. The words will be up on the screen. There's also some Bibles, I think, in the back. If you don't have one at home, take one. That's our free gift to you. Uh, the message notes are also on the Ignite Church app if you want to follow along there. So we're going to be in uh, verse 10 through 28. I'm going to read a little bit, and I'll stop and talk and read a little bit more. But let's just pick up the story in, in verse 10. It says this, When they came to Galeoth, near the Jordan, in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. Now, let me just stop there and give you kind of the background of what's happening here. This is a time in Israel's history after they had roamed the desert for 40 years. And God had promised them that they were going to live in this place called the promised land. It's what it's talked about there in the the land of Canaan. It's the promised land. The promised land was the good stuff. The promised land was a, a place filled with milk and honey, the Bible describes. It's a place of great prosperity. It's where their lives are going to be awesome. They're going to be amazing. It, like, it's just going to be like angels singing and, and just it's, everybody's going to be sitting around a campfire singing Kumbaya. This is the promised land, okay? It's an awesome place. But before they could inhabit the promised land, there were some other people there that they first had to kind of go to war with and take out, people that weren't God followers. And so the the Israelites, with Joshua at their lead, go into the land. They take out all the evil people. And after the battle is over and the armies go back home, we pick up in this story, right, in verse 22. They they come to Galoth near the Jordan in the land of the Canaan. The Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. That's where we're at. But let me go on. If you're not familiar in Jewish history, there are 12 tribes of the Israelites. And as they were settling the promised land, each tribe went into a different area of the promised land. And so some of the tribes settled on the west bank of the Jordan River, and some settled on the east bank of the Jordan River, like here on this map, if you want to pull up that map there, Kyle. So that's, that's Israel, basically, at this time. And so we've been reading, what we just read is that the, the tribes of Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh there on the right settled on the east, and these other tribes, Judah, Simeon, Ephraim, Manasseh, they settled on the west bank of the Jordan River. Now, the, the west bank, they were kind of referred to in the story as the Israelites. These are the Israelites, and these are the east tribe. Now, the east tribe, what we just read, is they built an altar. They built an altar on the east bank of the Jordan River. Now, let me pick up the story in, chapter, in verse 11. It says this, And when the Israelites heard that they had built the altar... On the border of Canaan at Galeoth, near the Jordan, on the Israeli, Israelite side, pardon me, 
the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. So the Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, to the land of Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. With him, they sent ten of the chief men, one from each of the tribes of Israel, each the head of a family division among the Israelite clans. When they went to Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, The whole assembly of the Lord says, How could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and, and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? Was not the sin of Peor enough for us? Up to this very day, we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin. Even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord, and you are now turning away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he will be angry with the whole community of Israel. Now if the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord, or against us by building an altar for yourselves, other than the altar of the Lord our God. And when Achan, son of Zerah, was unfaithful in regard to the devoted things, did not wrath come on the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one who died for his sin. And so here's what is happening. The western tribes have come to the eastern tribes. And they're thinking that they see this huge altar being constructed. And they're thinking that the eastern tribes are building an altar to another god. That's when they talk about the sin of Peor. The sin of Peor, it's referring to a time in Israel's history where the Jewish people were worshiping another god, a god named Baal. And the western tribes are saying to the eastern tribes, dude, do you not remember what happened when we did this the last time? Do you not remember the negative consequences that we faced when we did this before? When we turned our back on God the Almighty, don't you remember the destruction and the, the turmoil and the, the, the horrible things that happened to us? We're still paying the penalties for this today. Why, why would you build an altar to another Lord? That's, that's what they're saying. But then we continue. And in verse 21, it says, Then Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, the eastern tribes, replied to the heads of the clans of Israel, The mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows. And let Israel know, if this has been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us this day. If we have built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, may the Lord himself call us to account. No, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You Reubenites and Gadites, you have no share in the Lord, so your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. That is why we said, let us get ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. Last verse. Is that it? No. And we said, if they ever say this to us or to our descendants, we will answer, look at the replica of the Lord's altar, which our ancestors built, not for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. And so the Eastern tribes, their response is this. We didn't build this altar to another God. 
We built this altar to the one true God, and we built it as a symbol for future generations that they too, that, that we too are the people of the Lord. And they, didn't, they, they built it because they didn't want future generations to think that they were the only, that the Western people were the only people who loved God. But here's what I want us to see in the story. The Western tribes, they had jumped to a conclusion though, didn't they? They had assumed that this altar that was being built was to another God. And because they jumped to conclusion, they were going to go to war. They were going to kill their own people based on a lie, based on a half-truth. In fact, they were so serious about it. This is why they send this guy named Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest. In Jewish history, when the Israelites were worshiping this guy named Baal, he was the guy who was kind of like the God police, that people that weren't worshiping God, they, this was the guy that they sent. And so when they send this guy, it's like, oh my gosh, it's going down. We're, we're toast, because this is the guy that's going to kill everybody who's not loving God. The Western tribes mean business. But it was all based on the fact that they jumped to conclusions. Before knowing the real truth, before knowing the facts, before really seeing what was going on, they were going to go to war. They assumed one thing was happening when something completely different was happening. Now, I think it's very easy for us to hear stories like this, to read these in Scripture and go, man, those people are just dumb, right? To look at that and say, we, that's, just, that's just moronic. I can't believe they would do that. Why wouldn't you go and find out the facts? And it's very easy for us to look at them and say, they're just, they're just morons, but, but don't we do the exact same thing? Don't we jump to conclusions? Don't we react to things that are happening around us without all, always knowing the facts, without always knowing what's really happening? Don't we do the same thing? How many times when we're online, when we're on Facebook or on Twitter, do we respond to something without really, know what's happen- without really knowing what's going on? How many times do we get angry about something we see online or in the news and we get all puffed up and angry and we're just going to blast people without really knowing the facts and what's really happening? How oftentimes do we assume the worst in others and the best in ourselves? How often do we assume the worst in others and the best in ourselves? That's what they're doing. I remember when I was first in ministry, I was up in a church in Wisconsin, um, and there was a woman who served as the director of our smallest kids' class, basically our Ignite, our little Sparks here at Ignite. It was our little Sparks class. And I was the staff member who was over that area of ministry in the church. My job was to make sure that everything in that kids' ministry was going according to plan. And, and I don't really remember what was happening, uh, what was going on, but I, I do remember she was doing something in the leadership of her area that wasn't making me very happy. I thought there were some things that she could be doing differently, and I jumped to some conclusions on why she wasn't performing the way she want, I wanted her to, and I kind of blasted her for it a little bit. Maybe it wasn't mean, but didn't really give her the benefit of the doubt for sure. And I remember something that she said to me that stuck with me all these years, and it was kind of like a two-by-four that hit you upside the head. Sometimes the Holy Spirit works that way, right? Another person gets a, gets, says something to you, and it's the Holy Spirit's way of getting your attention. And this was kind of getting my attention. And she said to me, Paul, we judge others by their actions, but we judge ourselves by our intentions. Let me say that again. We judge others by their actions, and we judge ourselves by our intentions. Meaning this, we always give ourselves the benefit of the doubt because we know what we intended. We know our intentions. 
Well, you know, I know I said this, and I know my tone wasn't very good, or I know I didn't do this right, or I fell down on the job, whatever it might be. But, you know, that wasn't my intent. My heart was good. You know, my, my intentions were good. So, really, you shouldn't judge me for, for what I did wrong because my intentions were good. But to that other person who does something wrong, the other person who makes mistakes or says something unkind or whatever, we judge them by their actions, don't we? And not their intentions. We don't ever really try to get to what their heart was, what was really going on inside them. We just judge them based on what they did. Put it another way, this is what she was saying to me. Paul, don't be deceived and jump to conclusions. Try to understand where the truth is in this situation. Try to understand where I'm coming from. It reminds me of a passage in Philippians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul writes, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. I, I love the beginning of that. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right. Let me ask, when we're seeing stuff online, on Facebook or on Twitter, in our lives, people that we come in contact with, is our first thought to think about what is true in this situation? Is our first idea to go, what is noble? Is our first idea to go, what is right? Do we take a moment to pause and to think through those types of things, or do we often go to the opposite of those? Well, this is what they did wrong. They're really not noble. They're really not right. I think a lot of times it's the second of those, isn't it? You know, there's so much in our world right now that we face each and every day. There's controversies that exist in our culture where it becomes very easy for you and I to take sides. I know you do it. I know I do it. It feels like more than ever that our world is incredibly broken. It's so incredibly divided. I mean, just, just think about some of the debates we have in our culture right now. We have debates about you know, what do we do with legal and illegal immigration? How do we respond to that? We have debates about gender and how people identify themselves. We have debates on marriage and who should have the right to marry. We have debates on abortion and the sanctity of life. We have debates about the environment and global warming. We have debates on health care and finances. And of course, as we've seen this week, we have huge debates in this country about race and racism. And what do we do about it? And how do we handle it? Let me ask you a question. How many of you saw one of these topics on social media in the last year? Saw something posted about one of these topics and you responded to them? How many responded to one? So a lot of you have seen these topics. How many have responded? Some of you responded. Not all of you. Most of you are better than I am. That's awesome. We respond. But let me ask you a harder question. In your response... Are you sure that your response was completely 100% truthful and reflected well the heart of God in that situation? Can you be 100% sure that what you commented on or what you posted or what you liked or what you hated was completely truthful and reflected well the heart of God? I think if we're honest, the answer is clearly no. See, we all have the potential to jump to conclusions on a whole host of issues to take sides, and in the process, we lose our minds and we're deceived. And in that process of being deceived, we deceive others because we promote things that we think are truth when they're so far from truthful and so far from the heart of God. 
But if we could learn to pause and to reflect on what God is saying and what God is doing, I think often we can promote truth rather than lies. And you know, I can think of, if we think about this idea of being deceived and, being, and pausing, I can think of no better week to talk about that topic than what we've seen happening this past week, last Saturday in Charlottesville, and the aftermath of that. If there's ever been a time not to be deceived, I'm thinking about this week. And so what I wanna do with a bit of time I have left here is I want to take a look at this very raw and very, very fresh issue of what we've seen in Charlottesville. And I want to use it as a way to teach us how to pause, how to teach us to wait, to not jump to conclusions, but to learn to wait on God and his will and in the process not be deceived. So we're going to talk about racism a little bit this morning. And I'm using it as a, as a way of talking about how to pause. Now, of course, I'm talking about this because it's fresh in our minds and, it, and it's raw and I think it's something we need to address. But this can be applied to any of these topics, anything that happens, anything that we see online or in our lives or as we interact with people that makes our blood boil. And we can learn to go through these steps. And so as we learn to pause, I want to start, start with, I want to remind you of this verse in James 1, 19 through 22. It says, my brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Whenever we see something that angers us, whenever we see something that makes us mad, like the Israelites seeing the altar being put up, where our first reaction is to jump to a conclusion, the Bible is very, very clear, crystal clear. Our first response is to what? It's to respond, it's to yell, it's to scream, it's to blast somebody. Is that what it says? No, it says... Be quick to listen, slow to speak. Put it another way, pause, pause. Take a breath, take a breath. Look upward, look towards God. Have a moment to say, okay, God, what are you doing in this? What are you saying in the midst of this? What's really happening? What's the truth in this moment? Pause, don't respond, don't react, don't respond, just pause. And I want to give you three things that each of us can do in that pause moment. Three things that we should do in that pause moment as we're looking upward. And I'm going to frame this in the context of what we've experienced this week and seen this week in Charlottesville. And so here's the first one. In the pause, we need to understand our tribe. And here's what I mean from this. In the story from Joshua, there are 12 tribes. And each tribe had its own identity. It had its own way of doing things, its own way of thinking. And the Jordan River created a physical boundary between the tribes, which often led to miscommunication. Likewise, I think we're also part of different tribes. And those tribes have a tendency to cloud our judgment. We all see through different lenses of our experiences. For example, this isn't going to come as a surprise. I'm a white male, and I live in the United States. That is part of my tribe. I'm also an evangelical Christian, and I have a tendency to lean conservative on the political spectrum. That is my tribe. And while there are really good things about my tribe, all of those things also can cloud my judgment and cause me not to want to listen to what's really happening in the world, to not really be able to experience God's truth because I'm clouded, I'm biased. And this is important for me to understand because in understanding who my tribe is, I can do the hard work of understanding my own biases. For example, here's another shocker. I'm not an African-American woman, right? I think that's pretty obvious. And so while in my book, 
because of my tribe, I think that racism has for the most part been taken care of except for a few crazy people. I know that in talking with a person of color, this is not their experience. I remember, for example, hearing a pastor who was African-American and was teaching his son to drive a car. And he had to go over step by step on what to do when getting pulled over by the police, and including not how to, make, how to, not to make any quick moves, any sudden movements. When I learned to drive, my dad told me that when the lights go off, pull the, cop car, or pull the car over. And that was the extent of what he told me about being pulled over. I imagine then one, that I'll never have to tell my son Joshua not to make any quick moves when he gets pulled over by the police. Now, I'm not saying anything against or about police officers in that. That's not what I'm communicating. I'm just saying that my experiences as a white man are different, and so I have different biases. I have, I have different things that have happened that cloud my judgment. For this reason, in the pause, you have to do the hard work of understanding your tribe and understanding our biases. And the Bible speaks to this. In 1 Timothy 5.21, it says, I charge you in the sight of God in Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and do nothing out of favoritism. He's, Timothy saying to, to um, or Paul's saying to Timothy in this, keep these instructions. But as you keep these instructions, don't be partial. Don't show favoritism. Why does he have to tell him to do that? Because in our human nature, we all have a tendency to be partial. We all have a tendency to show favoritism. We like to like things that are related to our tribe and not like things that aren't related to our tribe. It's part of our sin nature. We all have the tendency to do that. And so in the pause, we're asking that question, okay, what's my tribe in this? How does my tribe want me to respond to this? And is that correct? Is that right? Is that truthful? Is that good? Is that noble? Or is that false? Second, in the pause, we ask this question, do I have all the facts? It can be really easy to react to partial information and to not get all the facts of what is happening. But in the pause, it is time to be quick to listen. I actually love the story in the, in the story of Joshua in chapter 22. The Western tribes could have just attacked the other side. But instead, they, they did send a delegation to do what? They sent a delegation to confront the eastern tribes, but also they gave the eastern tribes a chance to speak. And they listened. They listened. They took time to get the real facts. The same thing holds true in our world. Do we know the real facts? Does it, it relates to Charlottesville, right? Instead of responding right away, do you have all the facts? Do you really know what happened? Do you understand what was happening on Friday night and what was happening on Saturday? Do you have the time to watch videos of what was really happening to get the facts before responding? And not just some of the facts, all of, all of the facts. Did you see that there were people on Friday night marching through the city communicating horrible racist things? Did you see videos of white nationalists who came with guns and shields? Did you see that the young man who drove the car into the crowd was there with these people yelling the night before? But did you also see that there were anti-Nazi protesters there on Saturday as well? And that interview suggested that while they saved people's lives and protected others on Saturday, they also employed violent means to their opposition. That they, some of these people view speech as violence, and so because they heard things they didn't necessarily like, they responded with violence towards the white nationalists. And so the question that I'm asking is, do you have all the facts before we respond, before you jump to conclusions? 
You know, there's one area, as I think about this, it's kind of related to racism, but not really that. Uh, this is just me. This isn't Ignite Church. So, But one area of passion for me that I, I think about this all the time, and it's the issue of immigration. There's lots of debates about what's, how we should handle that situation and, and what's the right thing and what's the wrong thing. And I can give you a biblical argument on both sides. But one of the things I didn't learn, I didn't know until this week that I learned, was that um, if you are uh, poor and want to come into this country, there is really no legal way for you to get here. I was listening to an interview from uh, a lawyer, an immigration lawyer from, with World Vision, which is a Christian organization. He said there's three criteria for legal immigration. One, you have a family member that's here. Two, you are employed, like you have an like a advanced degree or at least two years of uh, a two-year degree, and you're sponsored by a company, or you're a refugee who's being persecuted. So that means if you're from a country that's just impoverished and you want to get here to make a better life for your way, yourself, unless you know somebody who's a family member or you're a refugee, there's no way to get here legally in the country. Now, we can have lots of debates on whether that's good or bad from a political arena, but I also know that God, God's heart is for the poor. And the Bible says clearly in the Old Testament that welcome the foreigners in our midst. But at the same time, the Bible also talks about that our country is responsible for protecting us. And so that's a big debate. But that's, that's one area where I didn't know all the facts. I didn't know all the truths. I assumed some things that weren't always correct. And so listen, in the pause, we have to take the time to learn and to, to listen and to hear before just jumping to conclusions, which then leads me to the final thing that we do in the pause. Once we check our tribes and get the facts, before we respond, we need to think, and this is most important, we need to think biblically. We need to think biblically about these issues. In James 1, he says, after being slow to speak, in 21, he says, therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. And then he says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. For us as followers of Jesus, our final and most important thing is that whenever thing, anything that hits our Facebook feed or our Twitter feed, anything that we see going on, we need to respond and go, okay, what does the Bible have to say about this situation? What does God think of this issue? What, is, what does the Bible think in all these different things? And I can say so often for us, when we think about what the Bible says, we, I think sometimes we so often get out of whack. Some of you in this room will say, well, clearly the Bible is all about God's love. God is a, a loving God. He's a, a good God. And that's true. That is who God is. But when we say that, often what you're saying is, so it doesn't really matter how I live my life. It doesn't matter what I do, what I don't do, because God is love. He's going to forgive me in the end. He's a love. He's okay with anything. That, that's one side of that equation. These are grace-filled people, right? They're, they're just like, it's okay. Just, God is okay with anything. But on the other side of the coin, we also have people that I'll call the truth people. Where God's word is like, you know, this is God's truth and you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do this. And their response often is to beat people over the head with the Bible and go, this is, this is wrong, this is sinful and you shouldn't do this. And they're, they're angry and they're militant and they're, that's kind of their response. And we have these two extremes, but here's what I want you to hear when we say think biblically. You can hold both of these things in tension at the same time. We can be people who hold tightly to the truth of God's word, that it is his word speaking to us, that he has communicated to us his, his will and his plans in this word. And at the same time, we can also act lovingly and graceful to people who might not be completely following what his word says. 
Can I get an amen on that? We can hold both of those things at the same time. And so let me just go back to Charlottesville. And let me just talk about, in that situation, what God's word says about those things. And I want to say this crystally clear so that I am not misunderstood. White nationalism, racism, Nazism is directly opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is directly opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I saw a video this week that made my stomach absolutely turn. It was a video of a white nationalist as they were preparing to protest with shield and weapons. And a reporter asked if they were scared about what they were about to go do. And he replied, why should I be scared when I'm doing the Lord's work? What they were doing on Friday night and Saturday night was not the Lord's work. And it makes me sick to think that there are people who are doing this in the name of Jesus Christ. Because it is so far from the heart of the gospel. Paul says in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if he was living today, he'd also say black or white. There is oneness in the unity of Christ. There is no racism in the gospel. Jesus came to die for everyone, not just some people. He died for everyone. What these people were doing is not in the name of Jesus. It is in the name of Satan. Because it is against what Jesus came to do. Because it is at the very heart of God. It is evil, plain, and simple. And racism breaks God's heart because diversity reflects who we were created to be by God. In Genesis 1.26, the Bible says that God said at the creation of man, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Human beings are made in the image of God. Every human being is made in the image of God. You are made in the image of God. I am made in the image of God. And because we're made in the image of God, each person has value and worth. Theologians call this the Imago Dei. Imago Dei, it's Latin for image of God. Imago means image. Dei means God. It's the Imago Dei. And when we experience racism, when we discriminate, when we show bias, when we segregate, what we're basically doing is we're saying, God, what you made is not fearfully and wonderfully made. Part of what you made, God, part of the beautifully tapestry is less than. Part of what you made, God, is ugly. That's what we're saying. Anytime we have a racist thought, or we discriminate against someone because of the color of their skin, because of their nationality, what we're doing is we're telling God what you've made is junk. Let me give you another one. How many of you want to go to heaven one day? Want to spend time in paradise? Be with Jesus forever? Yeah, me too. But if you have hatred and bias in your heart towards people of other races, you're going to hate heaven. Those white nationalists, if they make it to heaven, are going to hate it. Because in describing Revelation 7, 9 through 10, it says this, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the land. The throne room sitting around God is filled with people of every color, every race, every nationality. That's what heaven is going to be like. And so if you have white nationalist tendencies in your heart, I'm, I'm praying and hoping none of you do, you're going to hate heaven because it's going to look like the rainbow. 
And so what I've just commented on, what I've just said is the truth of God's word. It's the truth of where God stands on this issue. And it is the truth on which we must stand as well. And when we see something that makes us angry, that makes us upset, we pause. And we learn to think about the things in the world in light of God's truth. And this goes for every issue that I've talked about, right? We think about God's truth in light of immigration and marriage and the sanctity of life and gender and money and you name it. We proclaim God's truth with abandon. We proclaim it boldly. But we also also respond with grace. And we respond with love. To those that don't uphold God's truth, we respond with love. And this is the great dilemma of being a Christ follower. On one hand, we are here with the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's standards, and at the same time, God's heart is to respond to things that are evil with love. This week, there's been much made of the counter-protesters who responded in Charlottesville. And if they added to the turmoil, if they also were at fault for the tragic loss of life, the question has been asked, was there sin involved on their side? Well, getting back to the truth that the Bible tells us that there's no such thing as good people. The heart is evil above all things, it says. So anytime there's people involved, there is going to be sin. Even with the best of intentions, there's going to be sin because we're all sinful people. So with that being said, while I think the motives of some of the counter-protesters was admirable to stand in the face of injustice, there were also some that came with sinful motives. Some there were also deceived. And instead of pausing, their violent response did not reflect the heart of God. They were there to take on injustice, but in the process of taking on injustice, they also acted unjustly. And they acted against the will of God because they forgot to speak the truth in love. You and I are never going to remove racism with more hate. In fact, it just feeds into the racist attitudes. The only way you change a human heart is with love. If you really want to see change in the world, it only happens with the love of Jesus Christ. It's only with his love and with his grace, with the good news of the gospel, that human hearts are changed. So let me ask, what if those that had gathered on Saturday to counter-protest had taken some time just to pause? And instead of screaming back at the white nationalists, what if they had simply sat down and prayed? What if instead of taking up shields and clubs and yelling, instead of responding in anger, they responded to that that they experienced as horrendous and hate-filled and evil, but they responded to it with the grace and the love of Jesus Christ? What if they paused? This is what Martin Luther King did during the Civil Rights Movement. He said in 1964, when giving a speech for his Nobel Peace Prize, he said this, violence as a way of achieving racial justice is both impractical and immoral. I'm not unmindful of the fact that violence often brings about momentary results. Nations have frequently won their independence in battle, but in spite of temporary victories, violence never brings permanent peace. It solves no social problem. 
It merely creates new and more complicated ones. Violence is impractical because it is a descending spiral ending in destruction for all. It is immoral because it seeks to annihilate the opponent rather than win his understanding. It seeks to annihilate rather than convert. Violence is immoral because it thrives on hatred rather than love. It destroys community and makes brotherhood impossible. It leaves society in monologue rather than dialogue. Violence ends up defeating itself. It creates bitterness in the survivors and brutality in the destroyers. In a real sense, nonviolence seeks to redeem the spiritual and moral leg that I spoke of earlier as the chief dilemma of modern man. It seeks to secure moral ends through moral means. Nonviolence is a powerful and just weapon. Indeed, it is a weapon unique in history which cuts without wounding and ennobles the man who wields it. I believe in this method because I think it's the only way to reestablish a broken community. It's the method which seeks to implement the just law by appealing to the conscience of the great, decent majority who through blindness, fear, pride, and irrationality have allowed their consciousnesses to sleep. Put another way, they've allowed their consciousnesses to be deceived. And it's a unique weapon in history because it's the weapon that Jesus used to take on the violence of our world, to take on the evil of our world. What if Jesus had decided not to pause? What if Jesus had decided not to look heavenward as he was going to the cross and tried to lash out in violence? We would all not be sitting here this morning with access to the love of our Heavenly Father. Jesus took a moment to pause and he responded to evil with love, with grace. That's the Savior that we love and serve. This is why at Ignite Church we believe, yes, in the truth of God's word. We believe that the Bible speaks to a whole host of issues. We think it speaks to the truth about the controversies of our day. But it also speaks to those things with the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. And my question for us this morning is this. When we see things in the world that make our blood boil, when we see things in the world on our Facebook feed or on Twitter or whatever other social media you use that just makes us want to respond, to lash out, Will we take a moment and pause? Will we take a moment and just wait? And to think about what's happening right now. Think about our biases. Think about our tribes and what, how we're deceived that way. Think about if we know the entire truth of what's really happening, then finally, do we think about it in terms of what does the Bible really say about these issues? And then will we have the courage to respond yes with the truth of the gospel? but also in a way that is loving and caring and kind. Lord, uh, church, our, our world needs us as followers of Christ to respond like Jesus. That's why we're here, to respond like Jesus, to bring hope and healing to a hurt and broken world. Will you and I, will we take the moment to pause, to look heavenward and respond as Jesus did? Let's pray that we will. Lord God, I thank you for this morning. And Lord, this morning, I just want to, as we've talked about Charlottesville a little bit and racism, I want to just pray right now for those this morning that are hurting. 
that are struggling this morning with the people that were actually there in Charlottesville and saw how a group of angry white men try to destroy the image of God in others. And Lord, we know that that is not right. We know that that is evil because it is so far from your heart and your will for this world. And so Lord, I just want to pray for those that had to witness that firsthand and are hurting and are broken this morning because of it. We pray for those that, we pray for the family of that woman who was killed. Lord, that you would be a, a comfort and a salve to her right now, that you would be, Lord God, mighty in their lives. God, that they would know that you love them and that you care for them. And for those, all, all, all those others that are just suffering and recovering with injuries, Lord, we pray for healing there. And Lord, I pray for uh, those that were counter-protesting, Lord, that, that God, you would speak to them and guide them, Lord. I pray that, but Lord, that they would be able to pause and to not respond in violence or in anger, but God, respond with the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. And we pray for those that were protesting in the first place, the white nationalists and the, the Nazis and those folks that were there too. And it's hard for us to pray for them, but God, we pray for their hearts as well. Lord Jesus, that you would come and that you would speak and that you would guide and that you would change hearts and minds with the love of Jesus Christ. God, we pray that you would move and work in that way. And then God, I pray for us as a church family. God, that as we're interacting in the world, as we're interacting with people in our communities, in our workplaces, in our families, in online, on Facebook or on Twitter, God, would you help us to have moments uh, to just to pause to look towards you, to not jump to conclusions, to not be deceived, but to just understand who we are, that we are broken, flawed individuals who don't always get it all right, that we don't always know the facts. And so God, help us to, to ascertain the truth of what's really happening. And then Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord God, to, to, to rely on your word and not in the things in this world, but on your word, that we would be secured in your word and in your truth. And that that would be our rock and our foundation. And in that we would respond with the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus, we pray that you would come quickly. That you would come and you would save a broken, hurting world who desperately needs you. God, we love you. We thank you. We thank you that we can pause before you and think of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.